Welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with Peter Evers, who is the president and CEO of Bamsey. We're going to be joined by John Yezwinski, who is the president and CEO of Father Bills, uh, who is an entity that deals largely with homelessness in the Brockton area and surrounding communities. We're going to talk about some of the commonalities of interest and service uh, in this uh, environment, particularly the COVID-19 environment. Just welcome Peter to the program. Peter Evers, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Good. Appreciate you joining us for show and you know as covid-19 has hit um and continues to create challenges and we anticipate a potential second wave of covid-19 uh, there has been a lot of focus on what each individual can kind of do to get themselves from day to day uh a focus on the family and a lot of the you know trials and tribulations of the community as a whole have, in my view, largely been forgotten. Um, and we always have to be fierce advocates for those individuals that cannot be advocates uh, for themselves, those who are vulnerable, those who are dealing with mental illness, those who have developmental disabilities, uh, those who have behavioral health issues, and are largely living in the shadows of a, of a community. And it is our job, in my view, to shine a light on those people and say, look, we need to be, if we're going to be a strong community, we need to have everybody uh, as a part of this community and living um, their optimal lives as much as possible. I'm curious from your view, as many things have gotten pushed to the wayside because of COVID-19, do you feel that the most vulnerable of our population have gotten even more forgotten, if you will? Well, it's up to us to make sure that they're not. Um, And and certainly the people working at BAMSI and I'm sure Mainspring and uh, Father Bills and all of our community uh, providers have been doing everything they can to make sure that those vulnerable populations are taken care for. I think one of the things that really worries me, Chris, is that um, we're a boom and bust economy anyway. Forget COVID. Uh, My experience of working in this field uh, is that, um, you know, in times of plenty, we do okay. As soon as we have a downturn in the population, in the, sorry, in the economy, the vulnerable populations begin, are affected first. Cuts are made in services because they're seen as um, necessary reductions in spending because of anti-tax increases, all those sorts of things. It is definitely true that, that, that the, uh, the people who are living on the margins are pushed further, cl- uh, further to those margins. And oftentimes, some of those social determinants of health, some of the things that uh, people um, suffer with, for instance, um, lack of access to health care um, or uh, education, uh, they, get, they, they tend to be pushed down even further. Um, and so it really is up to us um, to empower those folks so that, they can, um, so that they can really rise above that. And, you know, that is through education. It's through provision of services. It's evidence-based interventions with people with mental illness it's recovery programs for people with addiction Um, and when we begin to normalize and you and i've spoken about this over the years when you begin to normalize these chronic diseases in the same way that perhaps you would do with um, i don't know diabetes or something like that and when you begin to realize that most families are, are, are affected by this in some way, then you begin to bring that back into a framework of, 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 of normal human behavior. Um, and we need to do that so that we can persuade a public that investments in these chronic diseases and these services are worth it because 
as we've talked about before, those outcomes are better than most other chronic diseases. You know, people who have an addiction problem for the most part get well. Uh, obviously, there's some tragic outcomes that we all know about, um, but but people do get well. So it really is. It, it's good treatment. It's advocacy, and it's radio shows like this really that that, that tell that story. I want to go into a, kind of a policy discussion here, um, which is kind of off the beaten path, but I think it's an important one nonetheless, where, you know, in an environment where there is wealth um, disparities, you know, the answer generally is that we need to tax the rich more. And, you know, you look at um, you know, Joe Biden's plan, uh, nobody under um, who's making under $400,000 a year is going to re- receive a tax increase, but individuals making more than $400,000 a year are going to receive a significant tax increase. So I'm curious from, and again, this is not your area of expertise, but I think it's an important conversation, is are we better in an environment where um, the wealthy have the ability to control where they send their money? Is, it, is an entity like Bamsey going to be, would it be better off if um, you know the wealthy have the opportunity and are incentivized via the tax code to send uh, money to organizations that they support? Or is it better off when um, individuals are taxed at a higher rate, the money comes into the government, and then it gets dispersed via Medicaid reimbursement, potentially, mm-hmm. or not? Mm-hmm. Um, what is your what is your view on on that? Where because you mentioned the environment being created, and you know we are in a recession right now, um, and there's a potential for tax increases on the wealthy. Is that something that is going to help the nonprofit sector in your view, or is it going to hurt the nonprofit sector um, because of there's a lot a lot of donations that come in from wealthy individuals that fund these organizations? <clears throat> I think, uh, of course, I'm going to straddle the fence on this. If I you would. <laughs> well, I think I, I, I think organizations like Bamsey should have a very healthy philanthropy department because you know we we do a lot of teaching in our community and having a sense of everybody being involved mm-hmm. from the community. You know, volunteers for Bamsey actually end up giving money. But I don't think what I worry about is with uh, a lesser tax base is that oftentimes people um, have this notion of the deserving poor, if you like, you know, oh, I'll give my money to, you know, something that I think people are deserving of. But those people and then it becomes a judgment call. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, I used to work in a detox. We got very little money from donations in an adult detox. But we had a kids program next door for uh, um, early childhood who got buckets of money of, mm-hmm. of restricted giving so we couldn't use that money in the detox this was in Roxbury uh, that was given that we didn't need or not really didn't need but we had enough in the other so in that sense I think you know um, you really do need a good uh, tax base for money to provide services and then we need to be held accountable for the results that we have because I think over the years nonprofits haven't necessarily been held accountable for it, but have been have argued for more money. We need we're moving into a much more sophisticated um, area now where our interventions have to be measured. I mean, we've provided services for this person for six years. What's the worth of that? How much better are they? How much more um, are they contributing to society? You know, um, are their children back with them? Th- those questions? I think. Um, so so I think it's a bit of both, but I honestly believe that organizations like Bamsey should not exist without a donor base uh, of, uh, of giving. So we're going to turn it over to Peter once again now, who is going to introduce our guest for the... 
Hi, everybody. We have the pleasure today of having John Yaslinski from uh, Father Bills, CEO of Father, Father Bills, with us for the podcast. Uh, and uh, hi, John. How are you doing? Good, Peter. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, yeah well, thank you for coming on. And, uh, you know, we've been talking, obviously, over the past few weeks about um, COVID, which seems to be the thing that's uh, on everybody's mind. Um, and, uh, you know, as I think about it, um, there is a disproportionate uh, effect uh, on different people uh, in our communities. And I remember when um, when COVID first sort of came about mid-March, I would say, uh, people began to say, well, how are we going to protect uh, homeless populations and what can we do uh, to support those folks? Um, you know, <laughs> I remember people saying this is an equal opportunity uh, disease and it absolutely hasn't been that in the way that this has panned out over the last six months. And, um, you know, you and I spoke when we were trying to um, pull uh, a panel together for the uh, senatorial uh, democratic debate didn't actually happen in the end for lots of different reasons. I blame COVID for everything nowadays, just to be <laughs> just right. to be clear. Um, it's best. <laughs> it hides a multitude of sins, as they say. Um, but yeah, I'd, you know, I'd like to talk about what your um, opinion is about that. Uh, some of the things that you've been doing to uh, help the folks that you're seeing, and maybe begin by uh, explaining a little bit about your organization. Yeah. No, so Father Bills in Main Spring is a, a regional nonprofit in Southern Mass. Um, we provide emergency shelter for uh, families and individuals experiencing homelessness, and we also um, create and provide uh, supportive housing. So we're sheltering around 130 families throughout the greater Quincy, Brockton, Plymouth County region. Um, we shelter about 250 individuals a night, and then we have about um, 550 units of supportive housing for people with severe disabilities that have struggled with homelessness through the years. So we've been around over 30 years as an organization, and um, you know I've been here for about 20, 23 of those years. So um, it's been an honor to be a part of, of, of this mission. And when COVID hit, uh, or early on, even in late February, when we really started to get worried, we knew our population especially our, our homeless individual population was a very at-risk group, a uh, very vulnerable group. We have a lot of um, people with compromised immune systems. We have a lot of people that are, we've seen a real increase of um, people that are elderly experiencing homelessness, um, over a 50% increase over the last three or four years. So we, we were very concerned. And so, um, yeah, we definitely saw where in the congregate settings in large shelters where people are sleeping on the floors and stuff, uh, you know, uh, so we tried to depopulate as quick as possible, and um, you know, we we had to end up in um, some um, MEMA tents, and we've been in hotels. Um, we've had across the board about a, a um, about a twenty five percent infection rate to the homeless individual community. But as soon as we depopulated, we we were able to really stop the the spread. So. You know, it has been a tough uh, six or seven months. Probably the you know the spring was the hardest time in my in my tenure here. And, um, you know, and I can't say enough of our frontline staff. You know, people that are having themselves putting doing really uh, unbelievable work, and 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 we never paused. You know, we always had to keep going. We never shut down our buildings. We wanted to protect our our individuals and our families, and then. We also needed to protect our employees, and it was it's been a very really challenging time. 
Yeah, certainly that's been the case with uh, with Bamsey as well, with tremendous work done by our uh, frontline employees, and we've been highlighting them uh, as a part of our I Am Essential campaign, which is uh, rolling out here over the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, it's just tremendous heroism um, and true uh, aspects of uh, being essential, uh, stepping yeah. forward in times of need. I'm curious as to how handling uh, COVID-19 in the initial outbreak informed you and you know what potentially would be done differently and how you're going to go about addressing it in uh, the, the second wave, which is expected here uh, in the, the coming months. Yeah, we've really made a commitment to stay depopulated. So we right now in our, uh, in our shelters have really reduced our capacity to, re- to reach the CDC social distancing guidelines. So our capacity in our individual shelters have been uh, cut in half, but we're still committed where we're renting motels now, where they're more a better non-congregate facility, and we've been able to keep the infection rates, you know, below at zero per, you know, one to zero to one percent over the last several months. So we've made a commitment to get through hopefully the flu season into the spring to stay depopulated. Um, and we've really pushed the state government and the federal government to look at not just staying depopulated, um, but let's create more supportive housing right now as we need it so we don't have these large shelters. And so we don't ever want to go back. I'm not saying that we, you know, we may have to it someday, but I, I think for the protection of our, um, our, our vulnerable neighbors that are experiencing homelessness, our staff, you know, uh, our volunteers that were, you know, we, we really rely on volunteers and, and, you know, we're not having them come in and help us anymore. Is let's, let's convert some of these maybe motels that are, you know, not going to make it or what is out there in other housing stock that right now we can get out of these congregate type settings and look at it as a public health crisis that we shouldn't have people sleeping on our floors in a non-pandemic, but right. definitely now during this time. Right. I'm, I have so many questions, but, um, you know, I'm just, I just want to pick up on that a little bit. Um, you know, there are, there are stories out there of COVID as making us think differently about how we do things. And you just hit on one of the questions I was going to ask you. Uh, are there opportunities for us to push housing first, um, you know, um, programs are there um have have the state been supportive in terms of um financing i will you know the state comes in for a lot of criticism but i will say at bamsey we we have really benefited from some of the supplemental residential money that we've had i wonder if you feel the same way about that level of support and are people listening to that you know we have a rare moment in time well, we have, I'd like to call it forced adoption, this notion of having to do something rather than planning to do something. Do you see, uh, are you optimistic that we'll be able to uh, depopulate in the same way that you're, you're saying and, and actually have that stick? Yeah. I, I mean, so, so for the short term, absolutely right. The state, the governor, um, the administration, we've been working closely with MEMA from day one. They've been with us. Um, you know, we've gotten some of the CARES Act money to help us stay depopulated. We're now connecting with the state through FEMA. So I feel like at least that, you know, for the public health crisis of can we stay depopulated until late winter, get through flu season, yes, I think the state's really stepped up. I, and I think right now, you know, we, we've had conversations with the administration about more of a supportive housing uh, investment, and, and the governor put in a t- 
ten million dollars of a out of round funding if you can start to leverage, bring other resources, and, and try to create a non-congregate response to a facility. And we absolutely are going to be aggressive to try to maybe convert one of these type of uh, hotels or motels or look for opportunities to create the housing that is needed. So, you know, I think we, we'd like to get it to scale. We'd like to get a bigger investment at mm-hmm. the end of the day, but definitely hoping that if we can get one or two projects underway, people will really see the the public health benefits of it yeah. um, at the same time of, of just the housing side. Yeah, and I think the other thing, of course, and, you know, well, I, I suppose um, if I was a cynic, I'd say, well, where was all this money before? Um, <laughs> and why haven't we been investing in some of these programs that lift people up? Um, and I, I suppose it's important that we are successful uh, with these initiatives. And I, I wonder if we're going to be able to look back and say, you know, with this forced adoption, we were able to do this, and more people with serious mental illness uh, and with uh, addictions uh, were housed and did do well and are no longer turning up in emergency departments and, you know, um, sort of creating the issues that really do put a burden on many of the services that are available in public, because that would be an amazing story. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I even have seen recently, you know, uh, Mass Health, uh, Medicaid investing in knowing that it's more cost effective for some of their, you know, um, the shared, you know, clientele that it's more cost effective to house a chronically homeless person that's in and out, ricocheting in and out of emergency systems where when they're housed, those those costs are really reduced and, and it's more cost effective to house and end someone's homelessness than to manage it too. So I, you're right. I've definitely seen even even through the the pandemic that they that they've seen maybe some cost savings when we've really got people off the streets or we've got people out of these large shelters in these kind of non congregate settings. But it was already there. I think now it's just brought it to a different light. This question is for for both of you, and you know we've seen in the COVID nineteen pandemic individuals becoming more isolated in a lot of different ways, but we've also seen you know, people coming together to help one another through times of, uh, of need, and that's certainly been inspirational. We've seen small businesses helping uh, one another in very challenging time periods. I'm curious as to how you feel that nonprofits and nonprofits partnering with um, you know, government entities and for-profit entities, how can we re-envision you know, the relationship of community uh, so that there is this invested interest on all parts to um, help one another and to be with one another during these these times of, of need. And we'll start with um, with Peter. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I look at what our core principles are um, as an agency, you know, I think about person-centered work. I think about being on top of all the best thinking and education and 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 being inclusive and the last one of those five or so core principles is 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 the notion of working together towards a common good that an agency like BAMSI is just part of a beautiful mosaic that exists in a community and and we have a responsibility to reach out uh, and and communicate and recognize uh, that the people we serve are multi-layered in terms of the in terms of their presentation and what's going on with them it is um i've told chris this story before but i remember i used to go out on is it about your doctor no my doctor isn't involved in this one (laughs) 
<laughs> but this is about when I worked at Pine Street and uh, I was on the uh, the OVAN, the outreach van. And um, I said to the head of uh, the Boston Public Health Commission um, at the time that uh, Dr. O'Connell said, you know, how many of the people that we're going to see tonight uh, have serious mental illness and, and substance, uh, substance use disorder? And he looked at me and said, well, all of them. And he actually, I think he meant to say, you idiot. Uh, but w- the people that we deal with um, are not just homeless. They have all sorts of other issues. They often come from abusive backgrounds. There's a trauma history there. There's probably a history of uh, untreated mental illness. And that underscores the need for us um, to work together and share our resources so that we're treating that individual as a whole person and not just the disease or their state of, uh, of being at the time. Yeah, I, I would echo. I think that this, you know the shelters are really, you know, the causes are, are so complicated. But it really, there's so many people. A high percentage have major be- behavioral health issues, and we're just a safety net of other failed systems of care of, of people not getting the supports that they need. And 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 through this pandemic, some of the collaborations that we've seen. Uh, you're right. I, uh, I'm hoping we're going to continue to harness it. What, what we saw both in the city of Quincy and in the city of Brockton is we saw both the community health centers, the medical health centers, Manit Health Center and Brockton Na- Neighborhood Health Center come to us and say, we will be here to do universal testing. We will be here to help triage people to make sure that we quarantine them. You know, and then, and then the city's helping us out with FEMA money. Um, and then seeing that we, you know, we, we, we had to, a lot of money over three hundred thousand dollars a month just in new COVID facilities, and the you know the the YMCA in Quincy opened up their field house because they were closed and opened up so we we could depopulate for a period of time, and then we had a campaign for hope that you know um, that the private community and the business community, and we were able to raise a million dollars within a few months to just front the money because the FEMA money you know. Um, wasn't available so so that we could pay these bills and stuff of all these added expenses. I just think about how we've harnessed those relationships and saying, geez, you know, what can we learn from that? And hopefully it can continue in in, in the spirit of collaboration. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it, it, you're so right, John. That whole idea of stepping outside of what you usually do. Um, certainly at Bamsey, we were approached by the mayor of Boston and said, "Will you, um, will you engage in our Stop the Spread uh, campaign?" So we've been doing testing, and so our our HIV/AIDS program. Um, our COPE program has actually been doing that three days a week, five days a week to start with, but three days a week. And we've committed to do that through uh, through November. And it really is about saying, you know, we know, we can see what the need is. And, you know, it's funny. I, I always think about, um, you know, when people with means think about people who are poor, they think they're not very good at budgeters. I would say they're way better budgeters than most people because they find a way to make things happen. And when you think about non-profits and agencies like uh, like ours that work on a shoestring we've always been able to be flexible to meet the needs of the community and you have certainly done that um, and I again I hope it sticks I hope we continue to collaborate I hope we begin to see some of the fruits of this collaboration some of the work that we've done that ordinarily perhaps we wouldn't have been pushed to do um, and and as Chris said right at the beginning it is our frontline folks who have made that possible and I guess my last uh, piece on the frontline folks will come probably come back to it though is you know we have to make sure that we 
um, get proper reimbursement and, the, and proper pay for those people because they are essential. And really, that's come out of the shadows that these are the people that kept this country running, you know, for, for $12, $13, $14 an hour. Uh, and we really need to address that issue of uh, lack of parity for the quality and the importance of the work that they're doing. Yeah, I, I would echo that. I think that, you know, hopefully, you know, we've just been blessed by, uh, as you've mentioned, the, the, that workforce and their and their commitment and, and coming to work and their and their some of the lower paying people in our community. They struggle themselves, our frontline workers, just living in the communities that they're working in. And and so hopefully here it will be another example of our of both the public and the private realizing the value of our frontline workers and how we need to need to support them. Yeah, one of the big takeaways from COVID is that for a long period of time, um, humans were judged, uh, and I think still are to a large degree, um, to be successful based upon what their income is. And um, we looked at what was taking place, the essential workers, the individuals that kept going to work on a day-in, day-out basis were very often hourly workers. And their role in society was so needed. Um, the people stocking the shelves at the supermarket, the supermarket um, uh, folks at the registers who were putting themselves in harm's way. Very oftentimes there were not the plexiglass uh, setups that there are now. And those folks didn't know what um, COVID-19 was going to bring. Um, they didn't know if they were going to get infected or not or their families. Um, and they continue to show up. And uh, human beings and human worth um, you know, being judged uh, separately from wealth uh, was something that I thought was important during that time period and humbling for a lot of individuals who, you know, thought that they were essential. And then at the end of the day, they realized, well, maybe I'm not that essential. <laughs> it's the people that are, are working the front lines that are uh, essential. And I thought that that message was one that was um, overwhelming during COVID and hopefully sticks with us. I want to bring it back to what you're talking about before in how uh, very often um, an entity like BAMSI or Father Bills, as we're joined by John Yaswinski, who is the president and CEO of Father Bills, um, are a safety net for uh, for individuals. And um, that's there were other entities or people themselves that didn't step up along the line and, and perhaps uh, change the trajectory of uh, individuals and their outcomes or step up in order to help them. I'm curious from, from both of you, um, what do you feel, you know, particularly on the issue of um, homelessness and behavioral health and substance misuse or issues, um, what can be done in order to prevent um, you know, future uh, issues? And we have to obviously have to look at this from a multifaceted lens, what's going on in the past and how can we um, learn from that, what's taking place right now, and how can we change outcomes in, in the future. And for both of you, how do we change you know, the outcomes of 20 years down the road now? We'll start with uh, John. Well, you know, it's interesting when we um, were really at the height of our infection rates, of course, and we were, you know, getting tremendous guidance from the infectious disease doctors with our medical providers is, you know, we had to stop taking new intakes for a few months. And the stress that it put on to the local hospitals, mm -hmm. um, the medical hospitals, the private mental health hospitals, the substance abuse treatment programs, 
that institutionalized, they, they had gotten to a point where they felt like a discharge to a shelter for a person that um, really, um, you know, should be in, uh, in, in uh, sometimes assisted care, sometimes rest homes, uh, but should not be out on the streets. And during the COVID, you know, they, they were held to a standard that maybe should be held all the time where they didn't, they couldn't just, you know, put somebody in a, in a cab and, and drop them off at a shelter uh, for a period of time. And it was amazing the stress levels that it brought to these institutions and state agencies and, and groups to say, wow, we don't have anywhere to send this person, and they're sitting here in this emergency room now, not for days, but for weeks and months. Mm-hmm. And I think it highlights for us, at least, in our fight to end homelessness, to say, like, why isn't it inappropriate? And what do we need? We need more non-congregate um, facilities to assist people. And it takes an investment. Um, but, but at the end of the day, we've been spending so much money on managing um, the, these issues in our emergency rooms that hopefully we can see some public policy change and changing of our thinking of where the value should be placed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, John. And I guess I would just follow that up by saying that um, that we all of the services we provide are in silos, and we've created uh, revenue lines in government and elsewhere where um, where sometimes it's about cost shifting. Uh, for instance, does the insurance company really care about the money that they're not paying for somebody who's stuck in the emergency department? And the emergency de- the hospital is incurring the cost of that, but the insurance company isn't. We need population health, and we need a value-based system that is completely based on outcomes that are relative to improving health, not to the provision of interventions. And I totally believe that if we move towards some sort of uh, value-based care that has a cap on it for the cost that is that somebody incurs, then these acute care places will, will want to um, develop relationships with, uh, with poster care uh, places, uh, w- with community-based places, so that they can work, truly work together on, on uh, health outcomes. And, you know, I, I've said this a few times as well. I was born, my, I'm a product of the National Health Service in another country where, where there is a universal I wonder what payout. that country might be. <laughs> you guess. How would um, you all do in the revolution? <laughs> Well, it was a while ago, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and we, we had, it, we had, a, we had a, a, a king who had some significant mental health issues, actually. That's but, true. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, until we get to that point um, and, and until we can sort of take some of the profit margins out of uh, uh, health care, I don't, I don't think we're going to make much progress. And maybe, maybe this will lead us to think much more about health outcomes social determinants of health rather than, you know, just these interventions like a stay in an emergency room. A question for both of you in regards to, to that, maybe more for, for Peter, um, but John, you're certainly welcome to weigh in as well. Um, COVID-19 provided an environment of change uh, where businesses, uh, people, um, nonprofits, everybody was confronted with ways in which they had to, to change in order to exist, particularly in regards to technology. And, you know, we were wondering during the time period, particularly in regards to telehealth, um, if there are going to be changes in the healthcare model and would there be a more um, outcome based uh, healthcare system as opposed to 
um, you know, frequency and uh, time spent with uh, and in a doctor's care. Um, what are your feelings on that? I mean, has there been any significant change in the the healthcare industry that's been uh, provoked by COVID nineteen, or is it um, you know pretty much the same where um, individuals aren't being um, treated? in terms of their wellness but are treated in terms of their sickness i think it's too too soon to to tell tell. i really do i think you know i think hospitals and providers like us and john's and mainspring and father bills are still really dealing with the with the crisis of 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 Mm. what has happened i think it I, i really think there has to be some good partnerships between government academic institutions and providers to say what can we learn from this you know it is true to say i'm afraid and john i'm sure you'll uh, back me up on this the the emergency departments are still full of people with um, substance use disorder issues and mental illness issues and we can't find placements for them that hasn't changed but i think some of the interventions and some of the collaborations will show that this is the direction we should take yeah no i i, I think you're right i think it is too too early but i do think that you know we've already started to think about our our community-based programs and and how it had it, it was very intense and very on-site and a lot of you know face-to-face you know interactions and is there a way that you know that, that, that we can reduce some of those costs but still you know do more through technology to to work with our participants or to get them to do telehealth um, you know, across the board, and in, in when you're providing those community-based services, so it, it has brought us to a point where, for a period of time, we were doing less home visits, um, and and really, um, had we just gotten into a cycle of okay, you know, the funder wants us to stop by and work with this family a few times a week, but really now it's like okay, what do they really need, right. and how do we help, right. and 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 uh, maybe that's going to change a little bit, and and maybe for the better. Yeah. I think it's up to us all to keep pushing that, though, because, you know, our systems are set up the way they're set up. And the danger is that we'll just sort of sort of relax back into those ways. So I think we have to be at the forefront of making that argument. Yeah, I'm really concerned because I feel like through this COVID, at least, you know, in the homeless housing community, even across the country, you know, every all the advocates are screaming about. You know, and I've said we should never go back to having how many people be sleeping on our floors, you know, um, for a variety of health and safety, you know, con- concerns. And, and now I feel like, you know, do we really have the political will to, to, to do that at the end of the day? Or, or is in Massachusetts, that's the biggest concern is all the shelters have depopulated. We've lost a lot of shelter beds. We've never had a large unsheltered population in Massachusetts and I think we're on the verge of having it not just for a winter period of time but maybe for the next several years if we don't make the right investments right now. Well John really appreciate your time we will uh, talk to you uh, certainly again because there's a lot of again commonality um, amongst uh, our two organizations and I think it's so important for you know us to build partnerships um, in the community in Brockton the surrounding um, communities as well and you know, that is really important during the time period a time period in which there is a, a lot of struggle and a time period in which i feel that those 
individuals who are often forgotten and are in the shadows. Um, I've been pushed even further uh, into the shadows because of the um, the various trials and tribulations of uh, the public as a whole. Appreciate your work and appreciate your time. Thank you, John. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Chris. John Yaswinski joining us here on the Bamsey Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us for this edition of the podcast. You can find previous episodes at Bamsey.org.